0: Georgie, aren't you going to say hello? Oh, come on, Bucko. don't you want a balloon? I'm not supposed to take stuff from the strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, Georgie. Very wise indeed. I, Georgie, am penny wise. The dancing clown. You are Georgie. So now we know each other. He <laughs> right I guess so. I gotta go. Go? Without this? It's my ghost! Exactly! Go on, kiddo! Take it! Oh You want it, don't you, Georgie? Oh, of course you do. And there's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And balloons, too. All colors. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float, Georgie. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float, a psycho killer? (laughs) Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel.
1: I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane?
0: Look at me, Damien! It's all for you! I am the eater of wood. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to a horrific installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 71, Stephen King's It, part one. So certainly our favorite time of the
1: year for the show. Uh pretty much the whole year I think builds up to this.
2: We certainly act like it's a big deal. I don't know if the listeners care as much as we do, but... Well, it's time for them to get on board. Tough titty. Yep. This is the greatest October in the history of forever, and we are doing a two-part series on Stephen King's It. Everything's the like Take Two, Part Two, The Return. <laughs> the 1990 miniseries, just to clarify. Not the current 2017 remake which is in theaters right now and is currently the biggest movie in the world and I guess we will address how we feel about the new one in part 2 so if you haven't seen it yet don't worry we are not going to spoil the new movie in this episode but we will talk about it in part 2 and I'm sure we will bring up the novel which Matt has not read but I have read multiple Uh, times Buried. (laughs) <laughs> throughout uh, The course of both episodes You can follow the show on twitter At greatest pod um, We are locked in right now For our Halloween episodes But we will get back To your listener requests As soon as this month is over So, oh, yeah calm uh,
1: Clip from this movie it, The uh, October intro That's right Big time new intro music well, new intro,
2: same as last year's. Yeah. Well, I think we've picked up some new listeners since last I think last there's certainly October. some
1: listeners that would say, it's new to me.
2: <laughs> yeah, I doubt everyone's going back and listening to all the old episodes if they're new. We,
1: we would uh, recommend that you do not do that. <laughs> well, there's some.
2: Yeah, there's some <laughs> gems. Text Matt. He'll tell you which ones are good. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... This is the second Tommy Lee Wallace oh, entry into the greatest of, moments.
1: Yeah, we're kind of going back to the well. I think uh, Halloween three generally accepted as our best episode. I
2: don't know. It's hard to say if it's our best. It's definitely our funniest. Right, so I guess okay. it depends on how you define best. If, yeah. If we're supposed to just be funny, then yes, Halloween three is by far our funniest. If in you're my opinion. <laughs> interested in
1: the things we have to say,
2: Roadhouse. <laughs> <laughs> well i don't know there's probably like a fine line like we don't there is a point in the halloween three episode where we pretty much just give up even trying to like pretend like the rest of the movie's worth talking about (laughs) we're just like yeah the rest of the movie stinks we'll see you next time
1: (laughs) but somehow uh tommy lee wallace able to grab the director's seat for this uh tv miniseries uh some network executive with a real eye for talent was able to bring him on board.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I uh I found out that uh originally ABC wanted this to be four 2-hour episodes, meaning an 8-hour miniseries. Uh they ended up kind of walking that back a little bit and and panicking <laughs> cuz it, it, it was a pretty big commitment. The content uh, potentially a little right offensive
1: even for the 1990s. <laughs> And so, you know, it ends
2: up being a uh, four-hour miniseries over two nights. uh, I believe a Sunday and a Tuesday night. It was big ratings. But by the time, you know, everything came together, um, their original director that they wanted, George Romero, uh, ended up not being able to do it. And so they, you know, they spin the wheel and it lands on old Tommy Lee Wallace. (laughs) Back in the mix. (laughs) And, um, I will say that and I I think Stephen King has kind of said this as well um we're talking about I don't know like a, a 1100 page novel even 4 hours is you know nowhere near enough to oh, cover Oh yeah and I would say that um screenwriter Lawrence D Cohen who adapted it for the thing he does a pretty good job Probably- of Probably as hitting the highlights and still getting the feel of the the novel into this mini
1: About as good of a job as you could do with the time limit.
2: Yeah, I mean, he he seemed to understand what the heart and soul of the story was what and, and the got it onto the screen. The were that needed to be hit too. Yeah, and it but it still works um incredibly well. I have some gri- like minor gripes with it, but for the most part, in terms of like picking and choosing what to keep and what to get rid of, I mean, he pretty much hits a home run.
1: People are like, well, how does Matt know what they needed to go for? <laughs> but don't worry, Zach has explained the novel to me
2: in great detail. I mean, there are some people who are like really obsessed with like Star Wars or Star Trek or Lord of the Rings or... I don't know whatever any number of things yours is it for me I definitely feel like kind of an it expert at this point I've read this massive novel at least four times I've seen the new remake twice I've seen the one we're going to talk about now I don't even know how many times probably 20 and now I'm listening to it being read to me by Steven Weber of Wings fame
1: uh collector's edition figures of every character in
2: both kid and adult form <laughs> i wish i wish so i mean yeah i feel uh, pretty comfortable discussing it uh, unfortunately though as we were kind of talking off mic before recording it's kind of hard sometimes to remember what scenes are actually in which version of the story that we're gonna you know what i mean like i've read the novel so many times that there's parts of the novel that aren't in this miniseries but i pictured them in my head with the actors from the miniseries so many times that i start to believe that those scenes actually happened and they never did but we're gonna do our best this is (laughs) gonna be (laughs) this is a massive undertaking
1: we were also debating whether or not the blu-ray could be flipped over and played on the other
2: side (laughs) when it seemed like not a possibility. No, not even remotely. <laughs> that was something that only happened with the DVD version. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I've owned this on VHS, DVD, and now Blu-ray. Oh, it's in that club. Yeah, it's a the it's triple a thr- crown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I don't even know. I think that's pr- that's a pretty small club as far as owning it in all three formats. Yeah. Because I didn't really buy a lot of
1: VHS tapes. Probably the stuff you may have owned on VHS was more stuff when you were a kid that you wouldn't dream of owning again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, or would
2: I? Yeah, I don't know. As you look over at those Mighty Ducks Blu-rays I spent like $40 (laughs) a piece on (laughs) because they're Disney Club exclusives or some stupid shit. Which you have to like move mountains to own. (laughs) All right. So uh, what can we say? Um, Prepare yourselves for a journey. I guess. Um, Something. (laughs) The miniseries, which we're talking about now, um, it opens with the murder of a small girl who we don't know and who is completely unrelated to anything. And it's happening in current time, which is, you know, 1990. Motivation behind uh, adding this random
1: scene to just give you another death?
2: Well... uh, Okay. Do we want
1: to go down this path this soon? I, so I don't know. Am I gonna make a lot of mistakes? This in the is kind of I like ask?
2: this to include this scene is to kind of like condense the whole idea that our narrator for the mini series, Mike Hanlon, who kind of in a weird way serves as a de facto narrator at times during the novel. Most of it is told in third person, but there's these random parts where Mike is like taking over. And it's like written, it's like from his journal or whatever. Yeah. And so the idea is all of a the sudden these child murders are reoccurring in the small uh, town of Derry, Maine, which is a fictional place.
1: Yeah, which Mike has, you know, decided that he's going to do the oral and written history of the town of Derry.
2: Right, Which is <laughs> which makes sense because his character stays consistent. He's the one that's like interested in in Derry's history as like a young kid and he's the one who first kind of discovers this cycle of terror that happens within the town like every 27 or so years. Um, We don't really at this point we don't really know much about him other than you know he's kind of a small town librarian and he kind of shows up in the aftermath of this girl. Um, She was kind of playing in her own yard on a tricycle or something and then we get like a real brief glimpse of Pennywise the clown oh, yeah. amongst the sheets of laundry. She's kind of killed off screen. Most of the like actual violence and that kind of stuff is, you know, not shown because oh, this yeah. was aired on regular television. It's, it's just dawning on me that I'm an
1: idiot and that this <laughs> scene is important because this is the thing that makes him in as an adult realize that it's back. Yeah,
2: I mean. Mike is basically this character that's rema- remained in Derry and his friends who he grew up with have all moved on and moved out of Derry um kind of unbeknownst to him but he kind of suspects they've forgotten most of their childhood it's kind of a, it, it's it's kind of a product of you know Encountering this evil is that they don't really remember any of this stuff. So he has stayed in Derry and he's kind of the, um, he refers to himself kind of as like a lighthouse keeper or something. You know, he's there uh, to keep an eye on whether or not this evil is going to return. Um, <laughs> I mean, I am aware right now with what we're saying, if somebody who has no familiarity at all with what we're talking about, this it seems insane because we haven't. Ex- none of this has actually been explained yet. We've only gotten to the first scene of this girl dying, and then the aftermath. Yeah. Let the pieces come together. So Mike is like, "Hey, what's up to the cops?" He's like, "You, this is weird. What's going on?" And they're like, "Well, this is a crime scene.
1: You're not a cop. Get out of like, here."
2: These, he's like, "These child murders aren't related." He's like, "The one kid was a runaway," and and then Mike's not buying it because it's like kind of the idea that. Uh, the adults in Derry or the there's town like itself is in, in like... This, ignorance? Yeah, there's this denial that anything is amiss, even though, you know, kids are being murdered or, or missing at kind of an extraordinary rate right. for such a small town. And the thing is, though, Mike isn't really sure if it's anything serious or anything related to this evil that he's in, he encountered as a child until there's a picture of a young boy that seems out of time and out of place. And uh, you kind of get the feeling that since the cops and everyone else around didn't pick this up or see it, that this is something for Mike to find. Oh, yeah. And that maybe Mike is the only one that can see it. And it's a a picture of a little boy named uh, Georgie uh, who was murdered way back in the year 1960. And, yes, we are going to be using the year's... That they use in the miniseries, not the novel, which are slightly different. Oh, um, so now they've used
1: several versions of years. They always want to make. Well, they I think in oh, e- yeah. the
2: novel, in the miniseries, and even in the 2017 remake, they always want to make present day when the thing comes out. Yeah. So they always have to go back, however long you know. So and it's twenty-seven years apart. Well, I guess in the miniseries, it's actually 30. Okay, yeah. They just round it off, I guess. Right. There's always <laughs> there's always examples in both the original miniseries and the new one of dumbing down the, the actual ideas from the book just uh-huh. to make it easier right. for the viewer. So, this leads to Mike having to make some phone calls, and I kind of like how they do this in this miniseries, which is... You kind of it jumps from person to person over the first half of the movie, which is basically just Mike calling back the adults, the adult versions of the kids he used to know.
1: Right. He's like, "All right, we need to get the gang back
2: together." Right, and through those in, those phone calls, we kind of get flashbacks from each character, which help build the story of when they were kids. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of jumps back and forth between the adults and the kids um, with the early action for the adults, just each of them being pulled from their current life back into whatever is happening in Derry in 1990.
1: And they're all living quite lavish lives at this point.
2: Right, except for Mike, who stayed. Yeah. That's the whole idea. The ones that escaped Derry all seemingly have gone on to be rich and successful in some way
1: movie stars or like movie writers and TV personalities and architects.
2: Right. So the first um, person that he calls is that the first person Mike calls is Bill Denbro, the older brother of Georgie. Yeah. And it's here that we get. uh, And Bill is a a famous novelist, not unlike Stephen King. They even kind of make it look like some of Bill's novels are like Stephen King right. type titles like there's The Glowing instead of The Shining yeah. and stuff like that. And he's currently in England with his movie star wife, Audra. Audra, and he's I guess written a script. He's maybe adapted one of his own uh novels into a script that's being made into a movie in England starring his wife and he's there on set and he gets the call and it's through jo- or through Bill that we get the flashback of georgie's death which is kind of like the iconic scene from it yeah in the novel it's the opening it opens with this out of context it would make sense for
1: this to be the opening i think in any adaptation of it
2: (sighs) unfortunately not this adaptation (laughs) right but i think it could
1: have always been
2: fitting i think you know i i understand when you look at it from like a finished product as, like, you see how they did the six phone calls and mm-hmm. how yeah. w- how that all led into these memories and stuff and how the memories connect to tell the story of the kids. I get, like, why, but ultimately it kind of loses that impact that, like, the first thing we see is just this random girl kind of presumably getting killed by an evil clown, but like I said, you don't really actually see much of anything. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of... Is a little disjointed feeling, and then I think once we get that phone call to Bill, it really, you know, kicks off.
1: Now Bill just rocking a frightening look. Just <laughs> it's a disturbing hairstyle. Horrible ponytail. It
2: actually might be the most frightening thing yeah. in this version of just it.
1: Odd looking and he's got this weird um, you know, freckle thingy, this raised <laughs> kind of skin cancer.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a mole. <laughs> well, I think that's um that's just part of uh Richard Thomas's oh, well, face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the actor best known so for good job uh, by
1: him. But the Waltons. The kid has it too. His is fake.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Young Bill. The uh late Jonathan Brandis that's playing right. Young Bill. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a uh it's kind of an underrated cast. As far as the adults go. And there's a couple of noteworthy kids as well. I recognize uh, Richard Thomas. He was in another movie that we did for this podcast, Wonder Boys. Oh, yeah. He was the uh, guy who had the baseball stuff. He was married to Francis McDormand. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tim Reed, who plays Mike, he was the dad on Sister, Sister, wasn't he? Uh, I don't remember that, but he is familiar Uh, to me. Yeah, he was. Uh, Annette O'Toole plays Beverly. Um, she's from Smallville, but she's been in movies. Yeah, all through the eighties. Uh, Harry Anderson, of course, from Night Court, who plays the older Richie Tozer. The younger Richie Tozer is Seth Green. Oh yeah, of all people. Night Court, I'm not familiar with. That's unfortunate. Uh, like we said, uh, Jonathan Brandis, R.I.P. And uh, the most recognizable John for me. Ritter. Yeah, R. John R. Ritter playing the older version of Ben Hanscom. <laughs> It's like the uh, Curse of It. <laughs> and then Tim Curry as Pennywise.
1: Yeah, kind of. It's one of those things that I kind of forget about. You know what I mean? I don't really associate uh, Tim Curry with this movie. Yeah, I mean... Cause it's hard almost to unrecognizable, it's yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think... Um, a I large, mean, it's not Clue. A large part of why this particular adaptation is successful and is memorable and is something that people carry with them from their childhoods is tim curry's performance as pennywise the clown he's just to me he nails the version from the book the yeah. especially in this that interaction with georgie when he's in the storm drain and georgie's boat has his paper boat that bill has helped him make has kind of um fallen into the storm drain. It's kind of we're kind of, you know, post flood. There's yeah. still a lot of rain and a lot of water rushing through the streets. But Georgie wants to go outside and play. It, yeah, and they're just like,
1: "Well, we know you're an infant basically, <laughs> but Enjoy playing in the streets
2: by yourself. Well, it was 1960. It was a different time. Yeah. (laughs) Beverly's dad is yelling out the window, I'm going to whip the skin off of you, and nobody cares. (laughs) Sounding
1: like a lunatic, but does not care.
2: (laughs) It was just a different time. Um, Speaking of Beverly, young Beverly is played by uh, the always fantastic Emily Perkins, who has now appeared in three movies that we've done on this podcast
1: she's an (laughs) (laughs) all-timer
2: yes that's right she's the man ginger snaps (laughs) and stephen king's it emily perkins
1: what can we say three out of four greatest moments mount rushmore
2: (laughs) <laughs> the other the other one's halloween 3 i don't think she was born yet or if she was she was a baby
1: although i at this point i'll believe anything because i know I she's timeless there was no way that
2: she was in this movie based on her age i mean <laughs> she literally was like 12 years old in 1990 and still playing a high schooler as late as like the mid 2000s i know <laughs> like, i mean what? honestly
1: in ginger snaps i would have thought she was like 14 or 15 making her, you know, 4 or 5 in the year 2000. <laughs> she's only she's 40 years old now,
2: which is crazy.
1: Wow, she's like the same age as you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> How dare you. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I mean, the thing with Tim Curry's performance is he kind of captures what I always feel like is essential to the Pennywise character, which is that he's supposed to just be a clown. He's supposed to attract the children right like a child molester in a van with candy yeah like he's supposed to make the kids feel safe and comfortable which is what happens with georgie lures him in in this scene i mean he's got the boat for him he's he looks like a regular clown now well, first
1: of all, it's like the boat
2: goes down into the sewer grate and georgie's looking down
1: and then he just pops up which even as a kid i would be like how did you get down
2: there? Right. And I think that's addressed a little bit more in the book. This we kind of just get like a very like yeah. quick version hey, of this scene. And yeah, I mean, that is the the disconcerting thing, and it's something that, you know, Tommy Lee Wallace uses uh throughout the entirety of the miniseries, which is kind of just that odd feeling of seeing something out of place, like a clown in, you know, a sewer drain or right. Later on, we'll like Ben. will see his dead dad standing out in the middle of that like swamp before the standpipes. You know, and <laughs> that go into the sewer. What are you doing out there, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> and just yeah, I mean, kind of that's like you know in the back of the char- like the character's mind. It's like something's off about this, which I think to a kid is particularly frightening. But it's something that builds slowly because mm-hmm. at first. Like, a child would react to the clown, like, whoa. what's up, dude? Like, hey, there's a clown. And then all of a sudden, it's like, it might take, like, a six... I don't know how old Georgie's supposed to be in this miniseries version, but, like, a six- or seven-year-old, like, a few minutes for it to dawn on them that this isn't right. Like, why is this clown down here? What's going on? How do you even get down here? How do you know my name? Because doesn't he just start calling him Georgie right away? Hey,
1: Georgie, yeah.
2: Right, and so... He lures Georgie in, and of course, you know, it goes Bites to a pretty bad <laughs> special effect. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the actual.
1: Um, that is a weird thing, though. I mean, obviously, anytime you kill a kid, right. it's kind of dark. Yes. And not great. But it is, there's something that's we- weirder and worse about disfigurement.
2: Oh, yeah. You know what yeah. I mean?
1: The removal of a limb by biting.
2: <laughs> just a dark place It reminds place me to of go. that part in... Um, did you ever see Jaws 4, The Revenge? I have not, but I'm up for it. <laughs> There's a part like early on where um, one of like, Roy Scheider's kids... Because Roy Scheider is not in right. Jaws 4. But I
1: just like how... The family tree has to continue to well that's the whole
2: thing the revenge is i think the shark right because the shark is targeting their family yeah Yeah, that's right (laughs) (laughs) if you haven't seen john's four it's quite a it's quite a thing yeah but like there's a part where a guy in a yellow like rain jacket thing is on a boat and he gets his arm bitten off by the shark and this is kind
1: of or nod to that <laughs> yeah well i don't know which came first yeah that's true it seems
2: like jaws 4 may have actually been in the 90s i, I don't oh, that's know that's true yeah that might be right the wife from jaws isn't it she's like kind of the star
1: yeah she's actually and michael uh, kane
2: hooking up with richard Dreyfus in richard Dreyfus is not <laughs> in yeah, it I but michael so. kane is and mario van peoples oh okay so it's a pretty good cast you know i do think i
1: saw it on tv then i do remember seeing mario van Peebles in a jaws movie he can't be in any movie that is not like some down
2: the line sequel that doesn't get a theatrical release <laughs> anyway so this kind of you see basically mike's phone calls trigger the 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 kids now adults from dairy uh their memories it starts kind of like rushing back to them in kind of this uh, painful way like each of them kind of like
1: overcome
2: yeah very uh poorly um bill he kind of reveals you know to audra he's like i've never really told you about my brother and she's like yeah well you said that he died when you were very young and he's like no he was murdered oh yeah and she's like, "What whoa, that is a weird detail and he's like, "It's like I forgot about it. I never really, I haven't thought about it in like twenty something years or something and it's like it's kind of this heavy thing that like you know crashes down on him in this seemingly perfect life he's built for himself well, a certain
1: something comes back from his past,
2: yeah, the stuttering, yep, yeah, you got it <laughs> stuttering bill, and then of course. Uh, we're going to have to try to rush through some of this. But then he calls uh, Ben, played by John Ritter, who's as a kid was fat and now has just lost a the weight. Just a complete mope. <laughs> Who, the kid version or the yeah. adult version? <laughs> um, He's kind of this hotshot young architect kind of living his dream, I guess. Alcoholic. <laughs> a little bit. And yeah. He's partying with just some random... It's this like weird studio loft apartment. Yeah, his the place where he's staying is kind of it's somewhere that he would have like only existed chair in the 80s.
1: Hanging from the ceiling, <laughs> but it's like a high rise ceiling. <laughs> It's
2: the like things, who hung that up there? The things that he says to this chick too as he's like trying to bed her is pretty <laughs> put on like a cowboy hat. He's like, I used to be F A T fat. fat. <laughs> <laughs> She's just like, What?
1: You're not gonna believe this. But it's not like he's like skinny as a rail at this point. I mean, honestly I don't know. I mean he's looking pretty good. Yeah, John Ritter always looks good, but <laughs> I don't think that the body discrepancy between young Ben and adult Ben is so shocking.
2: Well that's that would definitely if 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 opening with if not opening with Georgie is my main gripe, a secondary one now would be that <laughs> young Ben is not fat enough. Right. He looks like a lot of people that I hung around with and they were like maybe chubby.
1: Yeah, adult Ben's always Husky running... might be the right word. Adult Ben's running around be always being like, Yeah, I was a fat kid and they're just like you don't look that
2: much different. <laughs> yeah, they're looking at a picture and they're like, "What you <laughs> y- used to be." Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, so we flash back again to 1960 and Ben is like the new kid in town. Although it's kind of unclear some of the flashback stuff kind of gets swirled together. You're not it's kind of like disconcerting as to when all of it's taking place cuz the first time we see him is him introducing himself to the class. He's getting called names. By the class bully Henry Bowers, who will figure more prominently as the story goes, um, and he gets to sit pretty close to a pretty girl in class, Beverly Marsh, who he instantly has a crush on. But then we kind of jump to like the last day of school at some point. So it's like, was yeah. he starting at this new school on the last day? That is odd. Yeah. It kind of just jumps to like. They're out for the summer, and you're not really sure when all of this is supposedly taking place. <laughs> His mom was like forcing him to go in on the last day. He's like, We just moved here. Can't I just have summer vacation? She's like, No, you have to go in today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't think that that's actually what is, I think it's supposed to be a be jump right. in time yeah. at some point, but, um,
1: possibly my favorite part in the whole movie when he's walking out of school, um, is that that's the part where Beverly interacts with those other two girls, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the popular girls don't
2: like Beverly. They give her quite a verbal beatdown. <laughs> they're like, seriously, some people have no class. Some people have fathers as janitors or <laughs> janitors as fathers or whatever. Really, she says. the most literal disses of all time. <laughs> well. I mean, obviously, when you have a eleven hundred page novel, all of the characters, including the peripheral ones, are gonna be much 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 more detailed. so uh-huh. these two girls they come from like rich families, and they just can't understand why everything in life comes so easily and they have everything they want, and yet they still find themselves having to compete with like a dirt bag like Beverly Marsh just because they can't be as pretty as her. Like, oh. Beverly's kind of just, like, naturally pretty, even though she wears, like, dirty, rag raggy clothes, and, you know, her dad Doesn't is... Doesn't brush her hair. <laughs> you know, whatever. And she, she's constantly coming to school with bruises <laughs> all over her, that kind of stuff. Yeah, which makes it rough. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Ben takes it upon himself to write, like, a little... Uh, haiku to Beverly, oh, no, <laughs> which immediately goes awry. Really, Ben,
1: just so misguided.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean he he writes. It's like your hair is winter fire, January embers. My heart burns there too.
1: <laughs> She's like your hair, your
2: hair is boring, and then throws it away. <laughs> like what <laughs> is this? Yeah, I mean, I I would think that like. Honestly, if you weren't super familiar with haikus and like what they are, you would look at that and be like, this is it? I don't understand what this is. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? What am I supposed to take out of this? Well, in the miniseries, he signs it Secret Admirer, but oh, I don't think he... Never actually- a good move. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't actually do that in the novel. But, I so I guess it ma- it makes the intentions at least a little bit clearer. Why don't you be a man and just write... Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, he he's a big, fat pig. He knows he has no chance with Beverly. <laughs> um, he's regularly called tits. Um, yeah, that's tough. And then he runs afoul of uh, Henry Bowers. They kind of simplify all these versions in the miniseries. But Henry
1: Bowers is like what
2: the Sochers think the Greasers are. In The Outsiders. Yeah, Henry and his little group of friends basically dress like The Outsiders. Right, like
1: except them. they
2: actually are stabbing innocent people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now this is obviously somewhere where the miniseries had to kind of reel it in a little bit. They yeah. couldn't get too carried away with the violence and the Because Henry blood. Bowers is a masochistic sociopath. Sadistic. Oh. <laughs> whoops masochistic would be like if they were if he wanted it done to him but like yeah Uh, i i'm not ruling that out (laughs) well he's definitely got like a weird uh relationship with his dad which is not addressed in the miniseries but yeah he takes he basically his buddies get grab ben and put him up against a fence and they're gonna lift up his shirt and carve and henry wants to carve his name in Ben's stomach now yeah. in the book he strange move he gets all the way to like one of the lines of the E and Henry he gets the full H and then the, I think there's like another line and there's literally blood just everywhere and you know Ben's clothes are a wreck but in this he doesn't actually get to cut him they don't have that actually happen in the miniseries and he, he kicks uh,
1: all the uh, greaser friends in for this too I mean I know they're like roughing him up a little bit but they're not like
2: Yes, I think well, definitely in the book they're like whoa and they start to like back away cuz they cuz Henry as we as this summer progresses, the summer of 1960, uh it becomes clearer and clearer that he's like going insane, that yeah. he's just completely out of his mind at this point and is a total psychopath. There's some uh, issues there, yeah. I think in the miniseries, one of them does say, like, "Well, we're not really going to cut him. Oh, that's we? true, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. But then Ben kicks his way back against the fence, fl- flips over it, falls down a hill. It's like that scene from Hot Rod where he just keeps falling <laughs> forever. Somehow he doesn't break his neck, and he's able to kind of hide in the in the area that they refer to. Is did that to. thing from
1: Hook where the dude, like the fat kid, rolls himself into a ball and rolls down.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he like, I think he like hides in a sewer drain or something. And the the oh sewage, uh, I know. I'll go hide there. <laughs> the gang of uh mis- miscreants moves on to a couple of other kids just playing in the in the water down there, <laughs> which apparently assholes, is sewer so water. Mess with them. Yeah, I know. That's the thing that's not really addressed that all that much in the miniseries is they're basically playing in the sewers,
1: right. <laughs> Well, it's addressed in the way that we see it. We see it happening. I mean, not all these kids have great backgrounds, but Bill seems like he has normal parents. It's not like he's going home and they're like, quit playing around and shit. <laughs> you know
2: what I mean? Well, the thing with Bill is once his little brother dies, his family situation gets totally fucking His parents, weird. like, detached after yeah, that? Yeah, they're just completely gone, and it's kind of like... He can't properly grieve for his brother because the loss of his brother has meant like the total annihilation of his family in a lot of ways. Like he can't really even talk to his parents in any kind of normal way anymore. So and now so he gets to, do get he wants to Yeah. Do. Well, that's the thing. Like each of these kids, as we'll see, is kind of an outcast anyway. Bill because of his stutter. Ben, who we've met now, because he's fat. After Ben, I think Mike calls Beverly.
1: Yeah. No. <laughs> just a quite
2: a scene going on <laughs> for Beverly. Beverly has become a high-profile fashion designer and she is now living in Chicago. Um she's she's knows what not to wear from when she was a kid. <laughs> she's uh, about to complete some sort of a big deal with some Japanese businessmen. She's married to a guy named Tom who seems to be like her business manager or partner or something to that effect. And we kind of get the idea right away that Tom's kind of got a bossy (laughs) attitude towards her. Yeah, he likes to... Ordering her around around a little bit, yeah. (laughs) But it's kind of like... Sure who's in charge. Yeah, it's kind of only like hinted at at first until... Later, um, we see them kind of, probably like post sex, with some champagne in the bed, and that's when the phone rings. While Tom goes to get more champagne, (laughs) and things just ridiculous. Things get pretty tense from here on in because once Mike calls and he's like,
1: "You got to come back, Bev. We need you. We're getting the gang back together. Uh, You made a promise. You have to come back." And she's like, "All right, Mike, I'll be there." Tom walks in the room hey, I'm going to go to Maine, and this just
2: infuriates Tom.
1: (laughs) He just gives her a haymaker.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this scene in the novel is pretty insane, and it goes on a lot longer than the version we get in the miniseries, which, of course, makes sense. Punching
1: her wasn't enough. He's like,
2: all right, you're getting the belt, too. (laughs) but the yeah i mean the way that he introduces this is like this is something that has been happening throughout the course of their relationship oh yeah this is like regular behavior you've forgotten your lessons or something and it's like i remember this is out of like this entire nearly four hour miniseries event which includes You know, the murder of children, all kinds of supernatural, borderline demonic things in it. This particular scene was kind of really disconcerting to watch as, like, a younger kid. Because you're like, what is happening here? Like, it was really, like, hard to, like, wrap my mind around, like, what this all meant. (laughs) Well, he really, you know... Which I guess says a lot for, like, kind of the positive environment that i was raised in that this, something like this was just like what is happening Shocking, right now yeah well he really also goes from zero to
1: 60 in like two seconds <laughs> she's just like yeah i'm gonna go to maine one of my old friends called me and he's just like you stupid idiot and he just punches her in the face
2: <laughs> so before he's able to get any like in with the belt She's just like put that thing down and she starts just grabbing anything she can get her hands on to throw at him and then she manages to hit him in the head with what? With, with Is s- it just like a some sort of bottle of cream or something. It looks something.
1: ridiculous that this would do any damage to him.
2: Yeah, I mean they should have made it at least look like a heavy like glass thing or something. It looks like a plastic thing and it just knocks him to the floor. Just a complete embarrassment of a man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the fight between them in the novel is very intense and very physical and goes on forever. Yeah, I
1: wouldn't say the fight in the uh TV miniseries is quite uh what's her face from True Romance and James Gandolfini.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. This is this is in no way like victim blaming or anything like that, but it's like this the way this scene plays out if you were just to, like, analyze it, you're like, well, if it was this easy to, like, get this dude off of you, like, wh- <laughs> why did it take, like, this long? You know what I mean? It's yeah, like... You could have thrown a bottle of cream at any point. I'm obviously... I, I'm, I I I understand that there's, like, a whole psychological control thing that goes along with this kind of stuff, and it's not as simple as something like this, but... Yeah, it's just you're woke. It, it is, like, a very... It's just a very made-for-TV-friendly right. version of what this is. It's just like she throws one thing at him, he falls to the ground, and then he like bellows at her in rage, but he, <laughs> d- he doesn't really even get up or anything, and the fight is over, and she leaves. And Tom is out of the narrative completely at that point. I don't think he even Never pops sure back return. up. He does, really? in the novel, yeah. show back up later, but... This is the end of Tom, and Beverly is on her way to the he airport. He doesn't
1: come back to town at all
2: in the later half of the miniseries when they're at that hotel. <sighs> I'm trying to remember. Maybe he does
1: show up at some point.
2: I can't remember. Yeah,
1: all right. Maybe we should have watched part
2: two first. Well, it's not important yeah. right now. So We could correct this later. Beverly obviously has memories that kind of in a weird way, unfortunately, makes sense of the life that she has started to live, which is that she has essentially uh found a man who represents Took her father's place yeah, over who represents like the only kind of male dynamic she's ever known, which is her father, which as we find out pretty quickly, also hit her a lot. And
1: here's the weird is thing about weird. this stuff. Is there like a radar for this type of behavior? Because obviously He's not pulling out the belt on the first date, you know what I mean? So it's like if she started dating a guy and he didn't turn out to be uh, a woman beater, would she then break up with him Probably. and be like, this, "This is not enough for me"?
2: <sighs> I think I'm just gonna say that that question might be too big for okay. this podcast. <laughs> how many dates?
1: Uh, <laughs> how many dates until the belt's coming out? <laughs>
2: The novel gets into a lot of this, but it's kind of just like, you know, I, I I guess it's just one of those things where there is some sort of a subconscious signal that goes out there where there's guys like w- looking for the weak women to prey on and weak women seeking f- familiarity of the kind of abuse they've already experienced. Well, I, they I certainly don't know. found each other. <laughs> so anyway... She's now on her way back to (laughs) Derry. Yeah, and, you know, for some reason, well, I mean, I think we know the reason, and it's kind of a icky road to go down, but her father is particularly upset when he sees the poem that Ben has written for her. Oh, yeah. He's like, have you been doing things you should? That kind of thing. He's overly concerned with... The sexuality of like a 12-year-old girl, his 12-year-old daughter, you know what I mean? In a way that is just insane. Creepy, wrong, over-the-top, whatever you want to say, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where both the novel and the miniseries don't ever really come out and say that her father was sexually abusive towards her. But, but it doesn't rule it out. It's kind of like implied that there's something odd about the way that her father treats her that is beyond just like the obvious, which is like the physical beatings. But like, you know, I don't know. She runs. She manages to kind of stand up for herself and run away. And that's whenever he just yells out into the street, I'll whip the skin off of you. Right. Drawing no attention. <laughs> no, nobody cares. And Ben, of course, was, like, watching the whole thing, and he goes... (laughs) Hiding in the bushes across the street. (laughs) Yeah, he really wanted to see, like, how that love poem was going to be She can't get away from predators. (laughs) So he goes and gets her, and he's like, hey, do you want to come down to the Barrens? I'm going to meet these uh, kids that I met up with. She's like, you mean the sewer? (laughs) She's like, sure. Because by this point, Ben has already promised... uh, Bill and Eddie, who we, who hasn't gotten a call from Mike yet, but Eddie that he can turn their little stupid dam they were trying to build into an actual real dam. And She's like or he's
1: like, These are my friends, Bill and Eddie. And she's like, Yeah, I know. There's seventeen kids in our class.
2: <laughs> yeah, this is something that definitely jumped out to us when we were uh watching it recently for the show. Like he introduces Bev to Bill and Eddie, as if she has no idea who they are. But then here comes Richie and Stan through the woods to join their little group. And Ben, who is obviously the new kid, which we know, hasn't really interacted with them yet. And then Beverly goes, Oh, that's just Richie. Like she knows them perfectly. But Richie and Stan were coming to join Bill and Eddie, who just a second ago, Beverly acted like she had never met before. Well, she was just trying to be nice to Ben. She was trying to make Ben feel like a big man. Yeah. Like he was doing something. She's like, yeah, okay. And then, you know, they build a dam together and start playing around in that sewer water some more. There's a big emphasis on the Barons in the world of it. This is like a kind of a sacred place for these outsiders, these kids. We have Bill with his stutter, Ben with his fatness. Beverly with her poverty and her abusive father. Um Eddie, who we'll you know meet more in a minute, who's got asthma and who's kind of a small weakling of a child. Um Richie with his glasses and his clown his class clown demeanor, which kind of is off putting to a lot of people, and then <laughs> Stan, who's Jewish in a town where That's there's enough? probably not a lot of Jews.
1: He's also like a boy scout or something. Yes. Right? <laughs> Yet Hangs out with no one else from the troop. He actually didn't get into Boy Scouts.
2: He just wears the outfit. Well, I think in the novel, King, you know, addresses these kind of things. Um, you know, you ha- when you have that many words and pages, you can kind of h- cover all your bases. And yeah, uh, He it, does kind of say, address the idea that there were other kids that would come in and out and be around for a day or two, but, like, there was just something special the about this seven. I will say sting Well, six at this point.
1: Uh not really popping he he doesn't really get himself involved as one of the main players for this adaptation
2: of it well when he gets his phone call from mike um the flashback sequence is not uniquely his right the groups yeah and so at that point um yeah he doesn't really get a chance for much character development yeah You know, a lot of the other kids, we see their home life and their parents um, a little bit. Not so much Richie either, but no, Richie doesn't get for. I mean, and we'll talk about the new
1: it later, but Richie, such a big character. I felt like in the new movie that his appearance in this one is like dwarfed,
2: (laughs) at least like as a kid. Yeah, his. Own flashback is not particularly great. I mean, he just he has to go down to the basement of the school and he encounters Pennywise as a werewolf, which the backstory of is not explained in the right. miniseries. So it's kind of, it it's particularly cheesy, and that of course is an issue. That part seems dumb. Yeah, throughout this miniseries, which is. You know, they use costumes and makeup and practical <laughs> effects. Teen Wolf. And they're not particularly great. I mean, we I can't imagine they were working on, like, a great budget. I think it was, like, $12 million. But a lot of that probably went to paying the adults who were all kind of, you know, mid-level stars. And you're talking about a four-hour production. You know, I, I, 12000000 million doesn't go very far when you're stretching right. it out that much. So... At this point, you know, Beverly Okay, so we've gotten Bill's flashback and his encounter with Pennywise was through his brother's picture book, which starts to bleed, which we talked about a little bit at the beginning, and then Ben um at one point running through the Barons after I think they they have a whole weird backstory with him in this mini series where he's his mother, he he has like a single mother because his dad was like a fighter pilot in Korea who died, and they have to live with his mother's sister, and so like his cousin is kind of tormenting him a little bit, and it's clear Making that a lot of like fat jokes about him. Well, it's clear that they're not really wanted, I guess, that much, but you know they have to kind of do this because they're poor. they Christian and, duty. <laughs> And so he's running through the barrens, and he sees his dead father, who then turns into the clown, and then a skeleton tries to grab him, which is also kind of a terrible effect. And now Beverly is in her bathroom at her house, which I guess she in this version she lives alone with uh, her father, who uh, we've already established is a well-known creep. Yeah, and (laughs) well-known she starts hearing voices in the drain and it's some of the voices of the kids in dairy who have gone missing or have been found mutilated and killed. And she's like, what the fuck? And she's looking down at it. And then a blood bubble, kind of like a balloon comes up from the drain and bursts spraying blood all Pretty over gross. the bathroom. Um, when she screams and gets her father to come see it, he's kind of rough with her. And then she's like, Oh, it was a spider. Cause he's clearly not seeing the blood. And so yeah, that's, that's kind one of, a of the big weird things too, yeah. And yeah, like George's or Bill's parents didn't see the blood on George's picture book either. It's kind of like the kids can see this and experience this but the adults don't, which kind of I guess, you know, gives you some sort of indication as to what is going on with Pennywise and how it's, he's able to run his shit in Derry. He's yeah. <laughs> got a whole uh, scheme going on. So then uh after Beverly Mike calls Eddie, who is now an adult who is still living with his mother, who has always been domineering and controlling. And, you know, throughout the course of the um, miniseries, you kind of find out that maybe she was dangerously overprotective of Eddie, kind of.
1: You see the result of it. It's (laughs) kind of the result of, like, kids who were on
2: leashes, (laughs) Well, this is the part of... This is another minor gripe I would have with the miniseries is, um, as we talked about, Mike stayed behind in Derry, and his life is kind of very plain Jane. He earns like kind of a small salary as the town librarian. He lives in what is later described as poor town by Bill, oblivious to the fact that Mike is living there. (laughs) And... You know, but he seems okay with this life. Subtle racism from Bill, by the way. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, he's okay with this life. He understands that this is something that he has to do, which is stay there and make sure that Pennywise doesn't come back, or if he does, you know, alert the others. And so, the rest of them who moved and who have been able to forget their childhood and forget this trauma that happened to them, they... Are supposed to have all gone on to these like successful lives, and in the miniseries, Eddie's life is kind of confusing. I mean, he still lives with his mother. They seem like they have money. It's like a like a a nice looking house or whatever. Oh yeah. But like in the novel, he's married to someone who is kind of like a fat woman, like his mother is in the novel. But in this miniseries, she's not. That's how his a life turned woman. out. Great. Yeah, but he owns his own business yeah. and they are very wealthy. And yeah, I mean, personally, obviously Beverly and Eddie have right. made That's true. the right decisions, yeah. but it's hard to understand how Eddie is like I mean, maybe we're supposed to understand that he still has his own business. He's just living with, under the control of his mother still, but like it's kind of, it, it throws his whole get a lot story there. a little off. Anyway, um He's kind of like, what his, his um, interaction with Pennywise is kind of a cool scene in the miniseries, but I don't think actually was in the novel where his mother, you know, has impacted his life as a kid to the point where, you know, she doesn't want him participating really in phys ed or doing things that normal kids do and... Eventually, his phys ed teacher is like demanding that Eddie takes a shower, <laughs> which is weird. Again, it always comes back to
1: this. <laughs> the making the kids take a shower in school. I just have never got it.
2: Yeah. Um, it's it's definitely like a trope of these things. Yeah. What was the other thing that we talked about?
1: That had uh, now this? I can't remember. <laughs> but I know I brought it up that it's been... It used to always be was like... It She's the Man? that oh that might be <laughs> well that's college though i but i do feel like it was no always- that it wasn't
2: college that's oh, prep like school yeah <laughs> that's right but yeah um it is weird it's just like they're in middle school yeah i mean how much how i mean i get that like you start to like have sweat and bo but like i think you're all right especially a kid like eddie who's not really exerting himself in gym class i mean he's probably barely doing anything <laughs> it's like does he really need to take a shower and so he ends up having to go into the school showers by himself and that's when they start to kind of like a, all a, all the different showers turn on and start to attack him and then pennywise comes up out of the floor in kind of a weird claymation type oh yeah situation which kind of it it's clearly fake and doesn't look amazing but there's still kind of like a cool look to it because yeah. it's kind of like this in a weird way, it almost benefits the story because it's kind of just—it almost seems like a weird hallucination, you know? It, like it, it's so impossible and strange looking that when he pulls open the drain and pops out like a weirdo, <laughs> like, oh my, just leave me alone, man. <laughs> I mean, they, they had to, like, make the move of, like, Eddie somehow having his towel in the shower and he's, like, re-wrapped around his waist at that point because, it, I mean, it really is, like, a weird situation because if he was actually showering, he just Pennywise <laughs> is in there with him nude. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, maybe that was a little too dark for ABC in 1990. Yeah, I think so, probably.
1: <laughs> Although they're fine with the uh, visualization of just abuse of women
2: now all of them in addition to um having these interactions with pennywise they're all being tormented by the bully henry bowers and bowers casts like a wide net of kids that he bullies well that's kind of in a a way that's one of the unifying things of this group this the losers as they call themselves the losers club yeah kind
1: um, of uh An alternate name for our old movie club.
2: (laughs) A secret name. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like, it's true that they all have these encounters with uh, Pennywise, and in an odd way, fate seems to be bringing them together through different things, but their unifying battle against Henry Bowers and his group of thugs is really, you know... One of the major forces that pushes these kids together, and this all kind of really comes to a head through Mike's own flashback that he has before calling Stan, where we see Mike doing a school presentation in front of the class about Derry's checkered history, and this is all stuff that's like well covered throughout the novel, and it's kind of like a Cliff's Notes version. We kind of only hear like tidbits in the mini series about other horrible events that happened throughout Derry's history. People starting to think maybe I should move. Well that's the thing. It's kinda like the teacher kind of brushes it off as like, well that was morbid or whatever, but that's kind of the whole attitude of the town. Right. That's emblematic of like their denial of anything weird or wrong happening. And then of course because Mike is, you know, pretty much the only black kid in Derry, this is enough at least in the mini series for him to run afoul of Bowers, and so Henry and his friends, including Belch, who just burps in people's faces like a total animal, not a nickname though <laughs> it's his birth name it's honest yeah. un- he um they chase Mike through the town dump and they end up running into the other kids of the Losers Club who all have their own bone to pick with Henry, oh yeah. At this moment Henry's willing to cut them a deal saying like I'll beat you up later <laughs> <laughs> if you just if you just let me have him now. Now, pretty shocking and liberal use of the N-word for a that is TV shocking, yeah. <laughs> miniseries. It's still like I mean it's definitely like a little bit jarring in this context because the language in this is pretty tame and even though it's a horror thing, there isn't a ton of like violence or anything too terrible but then all of a sudden the n-word's just being thrown comes out of nowhere but yeah i mean what this leads to
1: is a really shocking thing for me which is that the kids decide to start throwing rocks yeah i mean where could that go think about the brain hemorrhages that could come (laughs) from this yeah i mean uh, i mean i'm not just
2: talking cte someone could
1: start convulsing on the
2: ground and shit you know yeah this is something that i mean i know we said we weren't going to talk about the remake but i will say this is something that did make its way into the remake as well and it feels much more out of place in the time period that the remake's taking place in versus the f- versus True. 1960 which it does kind of fit that like weird you know we used to walk to school two miles in the snow up oh yeah. ways. like the fact that like yeah, we used to throw rocks at each other.
1: Yeah, we used to play around in the sewer water for fun. And the dump. Yeah. <laughs> and so,
2: and so because, because of their numbers, their strength and numbers, they're able to fight off Henry who, you know, seemingly is coming up short in every attempt to fuck with the Losers' Club that summer. And now this officially brings Mike into the fold and Mike shows them like a picture book of like his weird Dairy Town history. They they welcome all, to the group, Mike. You know, they all uh start to like share their own encounters with Pennywise. This is like kind of this big moment for them because this each kid has had this weird thing happen. Yeah, this scary, horrible thing happen, but they've had to keep it to themselves because it's so bizarre and they don't you know, they don't know how to process what they're seeing and they think maybe they're going crazy because, you know. It's something supernatural. It's like, what is what the yeah. fuck just happened, kind of thing. And so now they're each like, "Hey, wait a minute, this happened to me too," and they're kind of making the connection that you know the child murders going on in their town are probably because of this. And then it just so happens now Mike has been brought into the fold, and he starts to ex- you know explain all this weird shit throughout Derry's history. He shows them this picture book, and then the Mike, picture, just a fountain of knowledge, really. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, he was preparing to be the town librarian. That's true. And <laughs> his picture book, he has an old timey picture, and then it just comes to life and starts moving. And the clown is in the picture. Oh yeah, and then like bursts through the picture at one point with his hand. I mean, he t- he talks to them like, from. Let's the Let's not look at your pictures anymore. <laughs> That's two different picture books that we've yeah. had some problems with, right? <laughs> so. Back in 1990, I mean, he's called everybody now, including Richie, who I think we just briefly mentioned. He was a TV personality, uh, which is slightly different from the book version where he's like a radio DJ, but... Yeah, we get it. He somehow turned his shitty voices and in comedy into a career. <laughs> his, his little bits of doing, like, British accents. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's not great. No, but it worked um, out for him.
2: Yeah, so... That just leaves one kid left for Mike to call, and that's um, Stan, who, as a kid, we mentioned was like a Boy Scout, and he's like uh, preternaturally neat and organized and seemed to have the hardest time accepting the reality. He can't handle it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's all a bit much for Stan. He doesn't really want to believe this has happened. You know when this stuff goes away Originally when they're kids he's elated He can't imagine ever having to live In that reality again (laughs) And here we are Mike The
2: bearer of bad news Making his last call So it's through Stan's Flashback that we get The big confrontation of The seven losers United Going to meet Pennywise on Pennywise's Home turf which is The sewers underneath the town of Derry. There's a big uh, building called like a standpipe where you can like kind of go into the sewers. I guess it's like, you know, access for utility people and whatnot. Yeah. Construction workers, whatever. And... Bev's dad. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is where they're headed. Of course, Henry now is hell bent on getting revenge. His little crew is... uh, you know right behind them following them in and before they go in though they all take a big suck off of uh Eddie's aspirator oh yeah and i think like it's important to note that th- building up to this ending it's a lot of like childhood the magic of childhood is like the power and like the whole idea of like the kids being able to see what Pennywise does and the adults not, it's kind of a very like us versus them kind of feeling like the kids realize that they have to be the ones to handle this situation because the adults are in their lives are now useless. And the idea of
1: believing in it is actually a weapon for them as well.
2: Right. It's more like they need to, the only way that they can defeat, this monster this thing in their lives is through methods and tools of their own creation in a way like whatever they believe will work will in fact work because there's kind of this odd relationship of this supernatural creature and them and this town you know what i mean like oh yeah it's all kind of like it's real because the kids are really dead. Georgie's arm was really ripped off and he was murdered. The other kids were murdered too, and so it's there is a reality to it, but they're kind of playing in this gray area between fantasy and reality. And you know, they take turns trying to use a slingshot to break bottles and Beverly hits ten out of ten. Yeah, they got an ace in the hole with her. And so they're like all right, well, we need to get some silver because silver is what kills werewolves and vampires in the movies. Yeah, that'll work. And so they believe in this silver, and so they get silver and a slingshot, and, you know, as they're preparing to go in for this big confrontation with this clown, they're like, all right, well, let's all take a big honk off of Eddie's aspirator, honk, even though by this medical point tomb? we kind of understand that Eddie's aspirator doesn't really have medicine in it. right. <laughs> it's just a placebo because his mother is insane yeah his mother has made him believe that he's sick all the time she's made him believe that he has asthma that he's always in danger that he can't do phys ed that he's fragile etc but yet in this moment as they're ready for this you know to face their fears they all have to believe in something and so they take this big you know breath of placebo but it like kind of unites them together and then they head into you know into the sewers
1: it's like that part in uh sopranos when jackie jr and his comrades smoke crack before they go to rob the poker game (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's exactly like
2: that (laughs) and so you know as they're like heading down into the sewers uh henry is in pursuit um he sends one of his thugs around the long way to try to flush them out back towards him which is like an insane plan it's yeah like just catch up to them no kidding it's like why do you need to do that and, and of course his friend who he sends Henry, is not like, a great strategist he's like i gotta go by myself like why but he grabs stan first and for some reason the rest of the losers kind of walk on for a while without real really realizing stan's missing oh yeah i guess you know even to them he's kind of a nothing he, he's forgettable so they pull Stan off into like this side um corridor. I mean, it's it, the tunnels underneath Derry are insane. Oh, I mean, yeah. They're huge. It's quite a maze. Which again is something that's kind of like addressed more directly in the novel, but like it, once uh, Henry has Stan like uh off on his own, that's when Pennywise shows up and kills Belch and turns Henry's hair completely white. Oh yeah. And then Stan runs and catches up with the rest of them. They're kind of united all in this, like, round circular room. They all kind of experience. The final showdown about to happen. Yeah, it's like, you, but you can almost, like, sense the desperation in Pennywise, like, with his, like, kind of just trying to throw everything at them at once to try to shake them. Right. Because he is, like, kind of afraid of their strength together, like their unified thing, and like he throws Georgie into the mix to try to throw Bill off. He brings uh Beverly's dad into the mix to try to throw her off and the werewolf kind of grabs Richie around the neck. Like each of them kind of experience their own horror in a way to try to divide them. And But they're like BFD. We're not afraid. I think it is Stan that he grabs and pulls off on his own. And they kind of don't really know what to do. And it's kind of just this memorable moment whenever Eddie just sprays his aspirator the best, yeah. <laughs> into Pennywise's face. and just like, this is battery acid, you slime. That's the best part in the whole movie. <laughs> and it burns away part of uh, Pennywise's face. Yeah, it kind of screams out in pain. because in Because, yeah, it's just water and like a little bit of something to give it a medic- a medicinal taste but yet in that moment eddie believes it'll work and so it works yeah and i think there's something it's like a good uh skill to have <laughs> there's something uh great and poetic about their the belief in the magic which is what can kill pennywise it's kind of a a cool Way to have these kids be able to fight this monster. But this is only dazed Pennywise. We need to finish him off. So Bev shoots her uh, slingshot with a piece of silver and catches him in the head. A part of his scalp breaks off, revealing this ray of light underneath. Because Pennywise kind of has this, or It, whatever. Pennywise is just like the form it most often takes. But It kind of has like these dead lights, as he calls them, underneath the surface which can like hypnotize you or whatever and that kind of is spraying all over the room as his head has been torn open by the piece of silver and so he kind of like flips away and retreats back down even farther into a tube another level down from wherever they are yeah and he's- they're not really sure what to make of this the kids are like is he dead Who it cares? sounds he's like gone. he's dying yeah who cares? He's gone. Yeah. He just immediately comes back and starts killing kids again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Pennywise kind of goes through these death throws underneath them, which they can't see, but they're not really sure if he's gone, gone, or what. And so once they make their way back up to the surface, they kind of have to make a pact to oh. come back. Yeah, they make this pact. Swear a blood oath. Yeah, I mean, for the miniseries, there's no actual cutting of their hands right. and the blood but yeah they all make a promise and of course Stan is a little hesitant but he does make I it I don't really want to do that again <laughs> that was not fun for me but he makes it and so now we've finally seen this promise that Mike has been cashing in on all of them throughout you know the first half of this mini series and um we go back to uh Stan's house where he's Before decided the phone to take a call? bath
1: <laughs> Pre phone call though, Stan's having quite a time. Him and his wife, everything going well, uh just quite a bit of happiness in the Stan household, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. Until that fateful phone call. And um he goes up to the bathroom and <laughs> He gets off the phone and he's just like, I'm gonna go take a bath. <laughs> Light some
2: candles. Yeah, I mean I can relate, but uh, like Absolutely. His wife comes up the stairs to discover that Stan has cut his wrists in the bathtub and taken the blood and written it on the bathroom wall. Done, And that's where part one pretty much ends. Now, I will say that there's a shocking his lack.
1: like, why did you take the time to write
2: that on the wall? <laughs> She's like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. It what? But, um, yeah, I mean... The, all right, so there's a little bit of blood on the wall, but there's like an insane lack of blood anywhere else.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> like it's just like a little bit of drips coming from like his wrist. It's like most, where is the yeah, blood? It's the cleanest wrist cutting that's ever occurred. <laughs> there's no blood anywhere. <laughs> and somehow he's dead and seemingly been dead. It's some sort of like anemic disorder. Yeah, I mean that scene obviously it actually comes a lot earlier in the novel. It's, it's actually the first phone call Mike makes oh. in the book. But I, the way they set it up here is pretty cool because it is like a great like cliffhanger. Like, oh God, we've got to go back and do this. I can't do it. Yeah, and it's also like Stan. Maybe you could have just not gone.
1: Yeah. Did you really have to? Maybe the risk cutting was a little extreme.
2: Well, I mean, I think you know. I guess the shame of not going would have been too much to bear. Yeah. <laughs> so he took he took the easy way out and just right. killed himself. Um, Yeah, I mean, that scene in the novel plays out way longer where, like, the door bathroom door is locked and it's like a whole panic thing because she doesn't understand what's happening and it goes on and on and on and she finally finds another key and then, you know, whatever. But, yeah, I mean, that pretty much sets up an interesting part two, the losers club now down to six members. Yeah. Like, what are we going to do now? We're um, old and there's one less of us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's, I, I wish like something this cool <laughs> could be like airing now where it's like something where you, it's so epic feeling and you don't know what's going to happen. Cause it isn't like a book you've read or something like that. And that, your first part ends like that. I, I don't know. I, I just, if I was watching yeah, this in real true. time, it's a great ending. You're just like, oh man, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait to see them like reunite now as adults. And
1: it's too bad when they get together, they can't remember who Stan was.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think Tommy Lee Wallace commented that the second half is not as good because the adults aren't as like magnetic and right. art. You know, there just is lacking, like, a certain magic that the kids had. But, you know, fortunately, there's still plenty of flashbacks to when they were younger in the second half. But, yeah, the adult stuff is not quite as great. So, yeah, I guess that'll do it for part one. Um, So we're locked in on this October... Series, whatever the hell you want to call it, I want to call it the greatest moments in the history of October. Absolutely, or the greatest October in the history of forever.
1: So one of two, whichever you want to go with,
2: or the annual horror-thon. Yes, I do like that. Uh, yeah. So, um, how many days till Halloween? <laughs> I don't know. Oh wait. Well played. All right, so yeah, thanks for listening. Um, and uh, part two will be coming your way shortly, and then you know, we'll keep it going for October, and then get back to those listener requests. We got a lot on our plates right oh, now. Oh yeah, a lot going on. All right, so uh, we'll see you next time for part two. Peace.